Well, we're going to look at Proverbs 17, and I thought we'd take a break from uh, sort of practically looking at the meaning of the Proverbs to address a question which has uh, bugged me for, I think, maybe 30 years even, and it's probably bugged you too. And the question is this, why do, does the book of Proverbs appear to be a random collection of sort of bits of wisdom that are all strung together without any structure? Without any theme, it seems, that you read a couple of verses which may follow on from each other, uh, and then you're onto something else, onto something else, onto something else. Uh, although different Bibles try to put uh, clever subheadings over groups of verses, it seems that really there is no structure to the vast majority of this book. And the idea is, I think, amongst most uh, expositors, that the book of Proverbs is, let's say, like a, a bag inside which are lots of wonderful stones, the individual Proverbs, and the idea of trying to understand the book is really to shake them all out onto the, onto the table and then divide them up so that you have, let's say, Proverbs about poverty, Proverbs about laziness, Proverbs about hard work, Proverbs about the Gentile or the strange woman, Proverbs about humility, Proverbs about arrogance, etc. And that, I suppose, is one way of trying to make sense of the book. But, of course, it begs the obvious question, well, why didn't God do that? And why, I mean, he inspired the book, why do we have it as it is, this sort of uh, continual flow of apparently random statements? And I want to start off by giving a, a, a couple of uh, well, comments, I suppose, upon why it might be like it is, and then to suggest what finally I have come to uh, as my own understanding of, of the book and, and why it is like it is. Now, a lot of these proverbs are basic sort of truisms and maxims which have their equivalent in, in many other cultures. God gave Solomon wisdom at the start of his reign, and he therefore on that basis wrote the book of Proverbs. So all this is inspired by God, I don't doubt that. And yet we also, we're also told that Solomon, right from the start of his reign, was involved with Egyptian and Gentile women. Uh, in fact, Rehoboam, his, his son, was actually conceived before he was born, uh, sorry, before Solomon started to reign, um, from an Ammonite woman. So clearly Solomon had this involvement in the surrounding Gentile world, particularly uh, Egypt, right from the start, right from his early days. And there are very strong similarities, both in content and in uh, genre, uh, between this book of Proverbs and some of the Egyptian wisdom writings, particularly a book called The Instruction of Amenemope. And it could be, of course, that despite having been given wisdom from, from God direct, Solomon took from his father-in-law, that is Pharaoh, uh, from Pharaoh's books, and took bits and pieces of wisdom out of that and mixed it in. In which case, you could say, well, with uh, the truth uh, as the underlying structure to our understanding of life, we are to take what is true from the world around us, what is wise, and mix that in. Uh, the other option, of course, is that books like The Instruction of Amenemope were written by the Egyptians, but, as it were, borrowing from Solomon's, uh, Solomon's wisdom. The question is, who copied who? 
And it could be that Solomon wrote this book under inspiration in the style of surrounding wisdom literature, which also, uh, from what has been discovered, was just a, a list of pretty random bits of wisdom, maxims, uh, truisms, etc., all strung together. And it could be, therefore, that he was seeking to actually preach to the Gentile world, and of course, God's intention was that Israel was to be a light to the Gentile world. Uh, he was preaching to them in a genre, in a style which was familiar to them. Now, although this study we're going to do is somewhat academic, we're going to try and stop every now and again and take some practical lessons. One practical lesson that comes out of that is that we are to seek to engage with this world in their own language. And it's very easy to think, no, we are here to just make a bold presentation of God's truth, to, as it were, hang up a, a sign that says God is one, not three, and say, well, there you are, I'm making a witness to God's truth, and you people don't seem to be interested, well, woe to you. It's the last days, and all this kind of thing. That is not the case. I, I think that people are actually desperately interested in the good news of the kingdom and of the Lord Jesus, but it all depends how we take it to them. We may say, well, technique is ultimately irrelevant because God is going to call who he's going to call. I would counter that idea by saying that, no, God has given us talents and has told us to go and trade with them. And when the Lord comes, we shall answer for how we have traded with them. Therefore, the success of his work, and in that sense, the salvation of others, to some degree, and I would submit a not inconsiderable degree, it depends upon whether we are going to save them, whether we are going to take the message to them in a way which is persuasive to them. So, yeah, you can argue that it's all of God, um, technique is irrelevant, God will call who he wants. On the other hand, you can also say that technique is everything. I mean, Paul, it said, it, the record says, so preached that people believed. And looking at the preaching of Paul, I mean, he uses a whole variety of different styles reflected in the various Greek words that are translated to preach or to teach in order to try to persuade people. So then make a list, a mental list maybe, or write it down, of the people in your life who you think you could take the gospel to and ask God for wisdom as to how to actually get that message over to them. My submission then is that uh, Solomon used this style because it was the style of the wisdom literature of the surrounding world and he wanted to take that message to people uh, around him in terms and in a genre which they understood. And it was not just a, a bold presentation of God's truth to other people. The other, uh, in, in, that, uh, in that context, um, Solomon several times talks about the establishment of the king's throne on the basis of truth and justice. That phrase, or those phrases and ideas, are commonly found in the Egyptian literature about the pharaohs, that such and such pharaoh, his throne was established on the basis of truth or, or justice. Now, as I say, it's a question of who's copying who, but um, what I like to think is that it was on the basis of Solomon's witness through the book of Proverbs that those pharaohs uh, picked up that idea. 
but getting back to the question of why is it so apparently muddled and jumbled and lacking in, in uh, theme and connection between the various verses, well, that is how it is in translation, for example, in English. But in Hebrew, it is not quite like that. Don't forget, most people were illiterate, and the faithful would have memorized whole books of the Bible. And even in the New Testament, there was a tradition that the Gospel of Mark was to be memorized by people wishing to be baptized. So then, the, the book is designed in Hebrew to be memorized. And that's why... There are similar uh, syllables in words and uh, phrases that occur in one verse and then in another verse and in the next verse and so forth. Or they all begin with the same letter. There's a lot of word plays. Similar sounds repeat between the verses, particularly between the final words of one verse and the, the first words of the next verse. So if read out loud and memorized, out loud, this is very well designed to be memorized. So, for example, there's a Hebrew root, SDK, Shadik, uh, which uh, basically means right or righteous or righteousness, and that, in some sections of the book, occurs in various words throughout the, the same cluster of verses. And it's clearly to help people to memorize it. Although when you read it in English translation, it all comes out as just totally unrelated. And those sound patterns formed a chain which would have helped uh, memorization. Uh, just back in chapter 16, uh, 27 to 29, for example, <coughs> um, those, each of those uh, verses, those pieces of wisdom, all begin with the word ish, Hebrew word ish, a man, a person. And there's little catchwords like that which link adjacent verses. Now, although we're reading this in written form, it would have first originated in an oral form, that is, people repeating this uh, and teaching it to others. And that's why there are clusters of verses which do have the same theme. And in your study of the book, I suggest that you try to, to discern those clusters where you, you do occasionally get a few verses which are on the same theme. But I still find all those uh, insights somewhat uh, ultimately lacking in explaining why you, you have this, this apparent uh, jumble uh, of, uh, of teaching here, which, as I say, apparently lacks structure. Now, I want to suggest then that although it's all true, all of this is inspired and it is all true, all the same I think that Solomon is repeating it, he's using all this truth and all this wisdom in order to justify himself. Now when Solomon came to the throne, it was not uh, without challenge. Don't forget the last 20 years or so of his father David's reigning had been a time of civil war and strife within Israel. There had been all kinds of rebellions against David. Solomon's half-brothers, particularly Absalom, had led these various uh, rebellions. Some of David's closest lifelong friends, like Joab, had betrayed him. Of course, David had a number of women in his life, and they'd all had kids. 
and there was some fairly big opposition to Solomon being the one who became king. And I would suggest that reading through Proverbs, you can see in almost every other verse an allusion to something in the life of David, or about Solomon personally, or about someone who was in the life of David. And pretty well, the, the fool of whom you read here in, in the book of Proverbs uh, is somebody in the life of David who was, would have been known to Solomon, and Solomon's pulling them down. And the fool is always contrasted with the wise, the wise one. And who was the wise one? It was Solomon, the one who chose wisdom, was given wisdom, and was renowned for his wisdom. So when you read about the blessedness of the wise one, it's all true what it says, but I think that Solomon is coming out with this in some kind of self-justification. Now, <clears throat> when you read, for example, about the fool, you keep on reading in, in Proverbs about the fool. What's the Hebrew word for fool? Nabal. Nabal, as Anglo-Saxons would like to pronounce it, N-A-B-A-L. And some of those verses that talk about the fool are clearly referring to Nabal. And, you know, later on, in the end of the, uh, of the book, uh, Solomon, under the name of King Lemuel, talks about the prophecy which his wise mother had taught him. And he pretty well ends the book by glorifying his mother, Bathsheba. Well, of course, there were other women in the life of David who also had their children who were... Uh, I, I guess, seeking for their children to be the ones who became king. So it's all true as far as it goes, but I think all the time Solomon is having a sideways swipe at the people who had been against his father, a sideways swipe at his own uh, competitors, and all the time he's seeking to justify his father against all the various factions there were in Israel who were not that sympathetic to David, nor to Solomon. So there's a lot of allusions to people like Saul, Nabal, Absalom, Joab, uh, uh, criticizing them as the foolish and the unwise, whilst presenting Solomon as the wise son. So we, we've read here in chapter 17 um, about how the, uh, I mean, verse 25, a foolish son brings grief to his father. Uh, and uh, you've got that again um, in verse 21. He who becomes the father of a fool grieves. Well, when did David grieve? It was over the death of Absalom. And then, of course, he often says, but the, the father of a wise son rejoices. The wise son gives his dad pleasure, but his dad weeps because of the foolish son. Well, it's all a sideways uh, swipe at Absalom and David's grief over Absalom, and as Solomon saw it, his joy in Solomon. And it's true that David and Solomon appear to be obsessed with each other. Um, and Solomon uses this phrase, my father David, according to the, the will of David my father, and my father David, he uses those two phrases, David my father and my father David, uh, a few hundred times in his recorded speech in the Bible. That's a lot. He is obsessed with his father, and I would suggest that he got into problems spiritually later, because all his earlier spirituality was a living out of parental expectation. 
rather than a direct service of God. Even when he asks for wisdom, he basically says, well, I, I really want to be wise because, you know, David, my father, told me to be wise and to rule the people wisely. So, okay, God, I, you ask me what I want, oh, I want to have wisdom. Uh, so that I can be a great ruler, a wise ruler, over your people. But that's exactly what David had advised Solomon to do. Now, my son, be wise and rule wisely over my people. So his motivations were mixed. Now, I would say that instead of all these sideways digs and nudges uh, and criticisms by implication of all the people in his family life, he would have been far better to simply believe God's word that God would establish the throne of David. And he is quite capable of doing that without human politics uh, trying to fulfill his promises for him, as it were. He should have found his self-worth and value in God's opinion of him, not continually thinking that he was pleasing David. If my dad was alive today, he'd be so happy with what I'm doing and so forth. And we just stop there because so often this has been a problem in, in our own community, has it not? People living out parental expectation, hitting mid-age, dad dies, they carry on for a bit, uh, and then they, even some of them become atheists. They, they lose the plot completely because clearly their religious part of their life, no matter how enthusiastically it was lived, was a living out of parental expectation. And those raised in the faith need to be aware of that. And those who mix with them in church life need to be aware also that those who are raised as believers have got their specific set of problems that maybe you can't relate to. And although you might think they're having a great life and a charmed life almost spiritually, you know, they may be going through stuff that you really have no clue of whatsoever. And quite simply, God has promised that those who love him shall never want, and he will bless us in the end. And it's not for us to try to, as it were, fulfill his promises for him by our own politics and all that sort of thing. It is petty politics which has destroyed, certainly the uh, faith community that, uh, that, that I came from, it's petty politics between believers that generally destroy churches and missions and all, all sorts of things. And really, the whole thing with Solomon and the Proverbs, I think, is a classic example of that. So I've chosen chapter 17 to talk about this because this uh, seems to me to be one of the, the worst or maybe the best examples of an apparent uh, bunch of Proverbs which, which have no particular connection the one to the other. And yet, it is a running commentary, once you look for it, upon the issues that were going on in David's life and in Solomon's earlier life. So, first, uh, verse 4 of chapter 17. A wicked doer heeds wicked lips. A liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Same Hebrew word, 1 Samuel 26:21. when Saul promised to no more do wickedly to David. And yet here the wicked doer or the evil doer uh, is set up as, uh, as, as a fool who listens to wicked people. And yet who was the wicked doer? Well, according to 1 Samuel 26:21, uh, 21, the, the one who did wickedly or evil, same Hebrew words, was Saul. And of course... 
Solomon's point is, Saul was listening to a bunch of liars, people like Doeg, the Edomite, and that's why he did my father in. And he, when he talks there in verse, uh, verse 4 um, about giving heed, um, th- that is the same Hebrew word in 1 Samuel 15.22, when he talks about a false tongue, false is the same Hebrew word, 1 Samuel 15.23. Uh, about Saul's iniquity. So I would say that these are vague illusions, and sure, they're vague illusions, because this is the whole purpose of what Solomon's doing. He's indirectly, but consciously, knocking uh, Saul and the family of Saul, because although David was very generous to the family of Saul, I guess Solomon still feared that they would rise up against him. Verse 8. At the end of the verse, wherever he turns, he prospers. Now that Hebrew word for prosper is a word very commonly used about five times about David uh, prospering wherever he turned during his period at the court of Saul. If you want the references, 1 Samuel 18 verses 5, 14, 15 and 30. So, yeah, these are, although through the mask of translation we don't pick it up, um, this definitely a big connection there with David prospering wherever he turned at that time. Um, the words also those used by David to Solomon when he charges Solomon to follow God's word so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. First of Kings two verse three. So then, <clears throat> the more you go through these verses the more you find these illusions. And when you come to a verse which doesn't apparently have an illusion to David or to anyone in the life of David, that may be because we obviously don't have the full history of David and maybe it's alluding to something in the life of David that we uh, aren't aware of. Okay, verse 9. He who covers an offence seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates best friends. Now, this idea of covering sin This is right out of Psalm 32, when David comments on his sin with Bathsheba. And that psalm was a masculine psalm. It was a psalm to be sung by all Israel, a psalm for teaching to children. So it's like a pop song that the whole of Israeli society would have known at the time. So in that psalm, blessed is he whose transgression or whose sin is covered. I acknowledge my sin, my iniquity, I did not cover. Same words. He's saying... Because I didn't cover my sin, God covered my sin. That's what David's saying in Psalm 32. Here, he who covers a a sin, an offense, these are the same Hebrew words, seeks love. And it could be that he's talking about God. He's saying, you know, the fact that God forgives us is him actually seeking relationship with us. That our response to that forgiveness is to love God. Then he goes on to say, but he who gossips about it all separates best friends. It's almost as if he's saying, look, yeah, sure, my dad sinned, but uh, what a wonderful psalm he wrote. And uh, God covered his sin, and now don't talk about it, please, anymore. Because if you do, you're just a gossip, and so on and so forth. Now, this idea is clearly in Solomon's mind in Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. These are the same words used by David for confessing his sin. Now, 
I, I think just in passing, so that we don't make this purely academic, but get some uh, practical lessons out of it. Uh, back there in verse 9, he who covers a sin promotes love, but he who repeats a matter separates best friends. Um, although I've suggested it, it is in a sense talking about God's forgiveness of David, um, it is also true on a human level that we promote love by covering, that is by forgiving a sin, not covering it over and pretending it didn't happen. Um, and the opposite of forgiveness is gossip. Now, isn't that interesting? He who covers a sin promotes love, but he who gossips about it separates friends. Why do people gossip? Well, on the basis of that verse, you could argue that it's because people can't forgive. If you've really forgiven somebody, you don't gossip about whatever the issue is. Going on, then, in chapter 17, verse 10, a rebuke enters deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred lashes into a fool. Well, taking the verse 9 as an allusion to David and Bathsheba and him repenting, then the rebuke that is accepted by the one who has understanding, verse 10, would be an allusion to how Nathan came to David, rebuked him, and David accepts the rebuke. And again, David is being presented here in a very positive light. Verse 11, an evil man seeks only rebellion. Now, that word for rebellion is exactly that used about Saul in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. And therefore a cruel messenger, as the Hebrew word malak, angel, a cruel angel will be sent by God against him. And I wonder if that is an allusion to the evil spirit sent by the Lord upon Saul. 1 Samuel 16, 14, 19, verse 9. God makes his angels spirits. That evil spirit that came upon Saul from the Lord, and people who believe in the devil should notice that, that it's sent all from the Lord, uh, that could have been realized in practice by an angel, an angel of evil, to use Psalm 78, uh, an angel of evil, not of sin, but of evil, uh, coming upon Saul to give him that bad attitude of mind or spirit, which was a confirmation of his own attitudes. Then verse 12, let a bear robbed of her cubs meet a man rather than a fool in his folly. I've said that the Hebrew word translated fool is Nabal or Nabal. A bear robbed of her whelps is exactly how David is described. 2 Samuel 17 verse 8. Um, <clears throat> then verse 13, whoever rewards evil for good, evil shall not depart from his house. Those Hebrew words to requite evil for good. Again, it's 1 Samuel 25:21 about how Nabal requited evil for David's good. David says, look, we've only done good to this guy by looking after his flocks, and now he won't help us. He has requited me evil for good. So, you know, that's a reference, I would say, to Nabal. And yet uh, we've seen Nabal is alluded to in verse 12 as the fool, as the Nabal, in his folly, who went out to meet David. So then, you can see what I'm getting at, that there is this running commentary upon the life of David. Verse 14, the beginning of strife is like breaching a dam. So stop contention. Now, strife and contention is something that Proverbs often criticizes, but it's the same root word used in 2 Samuel 19, verse 9. 
talking about the strife and division which there was amongst Israel after Absalom's rebellion and throughout the last 20 years of David's life. So what Solomon's saying is now that there mustn't be strife. He'd inherited a situation where Israel had been at strife for 20 years. And he's saying, look, I'm going to be the king. Anyone who's involved in strife and contention is, uh, is foolish. And I'm the wise man, and I don't put up with any strife or contention. So he's really blaming his half-brothers there. Verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who contemns the righteous, both of them are an abomination to Yahweh. Well, what connection has that got with verse 14? Well, it has a connection in that. 2 Samuel 15 verse 4. Absalom would say, Oh, that I would judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And that's the same word as what we've got there in verse 15, to justify the wicked. So then Solomon, uh, sorry, uh, Absalom came to power by being some kind of crooked judge who gave justice uh, to uh, wicked people who then followed him. Uh, and Solomon is really blaming Absalom's wrong judgment for the uh, when he was a judge for for those years leading up to his rebellion he's blaming the the strife in Israel that happened after that upon Absalom and him being a crooked judge and uh, when he talks about condemning the just or the righteous that's how Saul describes David same word 1 Samuel 24 verse 17 Verse 17, a friend loves at all times. Well, I think that that's a reference to Hushai. Hushai was one of David's friends who was loyal to him. He's several times called David's friend. And when we're told how David split up the uh, organization of the government, Joab was over the army, and Hushai was the king's friend. Same word. And then when there's the rebellion by Absalom, they say to Hushai, why don't you go off with your friend? And they say it twice. Why don't you go with your friend? Why don't you go? Why do you stay here in Jerusalem? So I think that's an allusion to Hushai. He's saying, yep, he was a good bloke because he stuck with my dad through thick and thin. Um, <clears throat> and as I say, there's all kinds of indirect allusions. Verse 18 it talks about the man who strikes hands. Well, oddly enough, they are the same two words in Hebrew, in 2 Samuel 18, verse 14, about Joab thrusting his hand into Absalom to kill him. And Joab, of course, later turned against David. Um, <clears throat> so then, you come to... Uh, the criticisms of, uh, say, verse 22, people with a broken spirit. And I wonder if that is Solomon's allusion to the melancholy and the depression which uh, afflicted Saul. And all the criticisms of unjust judges in verse 23, verse 26, I would say that that is him having a go at Absalom, his half-brother, who, as I say, built up his following by being a judge and getting the men of Israel to come to him and giving them all kind of crooked judgment to get them on side with him, etc. And finally, verse 28, even a fool when he holds his peace is counted wise. Very same words used about Saul um, when it says that he held his peace when he was at the beginning of his reign despised by the, the men of Belial. They, they laughed at him and mocked him but Saul held his peace, 1 Samuel 
so where are we going with all this? What I'm saying is that when you look for it, you'll find it in every chapter. I have given you just one example from chapter 17. But I see these references to David and the people in the life of David, every other verse on average in Proverbs. The whole thing is a running commentary upon David, justifying David, praising and exalting David, exalting Solomon as the wise one, criticizing his half-brothers, all his opponents, Saul, the family of Saul, Nabal, all these various interest groups that were against him. And yet he does it through using God's truth and wisdom uh, and, and simply presenting it and using it in such a way as is self-justifying. And in this we have a huge lesson. We also have a set of situations around us, a group of people in our lives, people who have betrayed us, people who have been faithful to us, people who are faithful to our families, to our, our parents, etc., and uh, so often in church life, it all becomes like some kind of tribal jungle warfare, where there's little groups and interest groups, and occasionally one person leaves one group and goes off to another, and there's a betrayal, etc. So often it happens that God's truth is used to fuel all that. Oh, they pick on somebody because they've got a, a wrong doctrinal view. Do you know what? His uh, grandson said such and such on an internet discussion forum. Do you know what? That, um, oh, she committed fornication. You know what? She was expecting that baby before they got married. Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, truth may or may not be on your side. Of course, you know, getting pregnant outside of marriage, of course that's not right, uh, and so on and so forth. And yes, it's right that we should uh, understand the Bible correctly and not incorrectly and so forth. But all those things have been used in this sort of uh, political kind of warfare. And the end result of it, the end result of it is that there is a collapse of spirituality and there is a collapse of faith within communities, within families, within the lives of individuals. And this is what I want to appeal to you about on the basis of Solomon and his example that this should not be how we think. Our response to God and to the, the death of the Lord Jesus for us should in that sense be pure. That because he died for me, I therefore shall give my life for him. And all that we do is for him, is for his service, to see his name glorified, to be spiritually minded, to overcome the, the flesh, the thinking of the, the fleshly mind, to break old thought patterns, to break resentment uh, and the power of unforgiveness, to have the mind of Christ, to think as he did, to walk as he did, to live and to die as he did.